Chapter Twenty of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty: A Fountain of Bitter Waters. The first thing Morton heard when he went home from Dawley's farm that December afternoon was that a favourable reply had been received from the Home Secretary. Humphrey Vargas's sentence had been commuted to penal servitude for life. "'I suppose the philanthropists and humanitarians will be satisfied now,' said Morton savagely. "'Sir Everett Courtney especially.' He was to dine at Fairview that evening. He found Dulcie and her father in the morning-room, Sir Everard in his favourite chair by the fire, his book-table and reading-lamp by his side, Dulcie at the piano, playing one of Chopin's wailing waltzes, a strain as plaintive as the moaning of the wind through an Aeolian harp. She left off playing and rose to greet her lover, while Sir Everard looked up from his book to give Morton a friendly nod. "'Was it a grand day's sport?' Dulcie asked, as they sat side by side on the sofa in front of the fire. "'You went off in dashing style. Had you a good run?' "'I had no run at all,' answered Morton, and then he gave a brief sketch of Lady Frances Grange's adventure. "'Poor thing!' cried Dulcie. "'How dreadful! She might have been killed, might she not?' "'Yes, if her horse had rolled over when he fell back into the water, it might have been fatal. She was in great danger, no doubt.' "'Was she frightened?' not in the least she doesn't know what fear means but she was stunned by the blow against the tree and was quite insensible when i dragged her off her horse oh how good of you to take care of her good of me why you would not have had me leave her to a groom and go after the hounds i suppose that is what an enthusiastic sportsman would have done said dulcie laughingly "'You forget that Morton and Lady Frances are friends of long standing,' said Sir Everard. "'He would hardly desert an old friend under such circumstances. "'I dare say he found attendance upon the lady more agreeable than a run with the hounds.' "'There was a sneer faintly perceptible in the baronet's tone. "'Dulcie looked from her father to her lover wonderingly, but said not a word.' "'I congratulate you on the success of your memorial, Sir Everard,' said Morton. "'Oh, you must not call it my memorial. It was as much Sir Nathaniel's as mine, and I understand that even your aunt signed it.' "'Oh, but Sir Nathaniel told me it was you who originated the petition. It was you who took that man's position to heart.' well perhaps i knew better than any one what a beaten-down whelp the creature was and how poor a revenge it would be to hang him i don't believe his death could have been any satisfaction to you morton it would be no satisfaction to me to hang the wrong man said morton if that's what you mean but it would be an ineffable satisfaction to me to see the right man swing for his crime I take it that if you hadn't felt serious doubts as to this man's guilt, you would not have been so eager to beg him off. Mm, that was a question for the jury, and they decided it against him. 
my only feeling in the matter was that he is a miserable wretch who scarcely knows the difference between right and wrong and that his remnant of life might just as well be spared well if you extend your mercy to that class of criminals you will have occasion to memorialise the home secretary every week for the hangman's chief duty is with that kind of sinner this man's case came within my ken and appealed to me in a peculiar manner i hope morton you will have the good sense to let this subject drop and that you will not call upon me to justify myself any farther this was the nearest approach to a coolness of feeling that there had ever been between sir everard and his future son-in-law since morton had first been received at fairview as dulcie's accepted suitor a look of distress clouded the fair girlish face as dulcie turned appealingly to her father oh don't be offended with morton dear papa she said gently you know that this is a subject upon which he feels deeply no doubt but i think we have had something too much of it there are some subjects that will not bear to be talked about here scroope announced dinner and closed the conversation sir everard gave his arm to his daughter and morton followed to the snug little dining-room where the round table was bright with flowers and ferns and quaint venetian glass and artistic old silver at table the conversation became frivolous in deference to scroope and his underling sir everard was for the most part silent leaving the young people to talk of the things they cared about the church the choir the last penny reading at the schoolhouse the new year ball at highclere the at home early in january for which mrs aspinall had issued cards with the agreeable announcement dancing in the left-hand corner i suppose lady frances will go to the ball at highclere speculated dulcie i haven't asked her if she is going but i should think it likely she is passionately fond of dancing why don't you go dulcie i would get tickets for tiny and horatia and my aunt could chaperone you all papa does not approve of public balls said dulcie with a deprecating glance at her father i approve of them immensely in the abstract as a pleasant impetus to the trade of a quiet little county town but i don't want to see my daughter spinning round a public assembly room in the arms of any counter-jumper whom the master of ceremonies may introduce to her oh papa there is a formidable list of patronesses tickets only by voucher there's no possibility of a counter-jumper at the high clear ball mm, then there may be something worse than counter-jumpers raffish hunting men perhaps who come from heaven knows where and get their living heaven knows how any man who comes to avonmore with three horses and a servant takes brevet rank as gentleman very well said morton we will none of us go to the ball i suppose you have accepted for mrs aspinall's at home oh yes papa has no objection to that dinner was over dulcie trifled with a cluster of grapes for five minutes and then rose to leave the two gentlemen to their claret and conversation 
Morton opened the door for her and gently pressed the little hand that was nearest him as she passed into the hall. Then he went back to the hearth and seated himself opposite Sir Everard, who had wheeled his chair round to the fire. It was a blusterous night, the wind raving and whistling in the tops of the tall poplars and making the long branches of the cedars creak and groan. A new moon rose high among black ragged clouds, showing her pale face fitfully through a rent in the darkness. For some minutes the two men sat by the fire in silence, listening to the wind howling in the wide old chimney, where it seemed to rage more furiously than out of doors. Sir Everard was thoughtful after his wont. He gazed dreamily at the burning logs, as if in the caverns and gulfs and rugged peaks and promontories of that picturesque fire he could read the story of the past. That settled sadness which had been a part of his character ever since his wife's untimely death hung over him to-night like a cloud. He looked up suddenly and saw Morton watching him with grave, intent eyes. "'Why don't you fill your glass, Morton? That La Rose in the jug beside you is too good a wine to be treated so contemptuously.' Well, "'May I give you some first? "'Do. I feel shivery and out of sorts to-night. The moaning of a wind like that is the most melancholy sound in nature.' Morton filled the thin, bell-shaped glass before the baronet, but he took no wine himself. "'You said just now, Sir Everard,' he began gravely, "'that there had been something too much said by me about the trial of that man yonder. Yet I think, if you consider the matter, you will see that an only son, losing a beloved father by a most foul crime, when he was just old enough to know and love him, and carry his image in his mind to the end of his life, could hardly be expected to be temperate in his feelings towards that father's murderer. The lapse of years, which to the outside world may seem to lessen the wickedness of the crime, could have no influence upon the son, who in all those years had waited and hoped for the day of retribution. Thus you will perceive, on reflection, that it is hardly strange I should feel somewhat disappointed at this man's escape, always supposing his story to be true. "'I am quite able to understand your feeling,' said Sir Everard, but I think I should be doing you no kindness were I to encourage a morbid disposition to dwell upon the past. My own life has been so darkened by grief that I would do much to save a young man in whose welfare I am interested from the weak indulgence of a vain regret. If you are to be Dulcie's husband, you must make her life bright and happy, and to do that you must look forward and not backward. I hope to be able to do that. I hope to get this cloud out of my brain, said Morton. Sir Everard, may I be frank with you? The franker the better. For the last week, perhaps I better say ever since the trial, my mind has been distracted by torturing doubts. I have fought in vain against the diabolical suggestions that have forced themselves upon me. And now, now I sit opposite you here, your friend and guest, your future son-in-law, bound by every tie to honour and revere you. 
the truth must out my misery of the last fortnight has been caused by the idea that you once my father's bosom friend know more of the circumstances of his death than you care to reveal that you are hiding something from me that you had some private reason for saving that man's life that you a passionate burst of sobs stopped his utterance he turned his back upon sir everard and buried his face in the cushion of his chair there was silence for some moments while morton sat with his face hidden his whole frame shaken by the violence of his emotion sir everard waited for the storm to pass morton i am inexpressibly grieved and distressed at this he began calmly in tones of friendly admonition you have brooded upon this dreadful theme until your mind has lost its balance and you see all things in a false light what could i know of your father's murder which all the world that ever heard of that murder does not know what motive could i have for hiding any knowledge of that kind i his friend what secret alliance can you conceive between me and yonder vagabond the whole fancy is midsummer madness i am too sorry for you to be angry but i warn you that i will marry my daughter to no man who is the victim of a monomania if you cannot shut this folly out of your mind at once and for ever you are no husband for dulcie oh dulcie my darling murmured morton with his face still hidden in his clasped hands what would i not sacrifice for your sake she asks no sacrifice from you nor i for her retorted sir everard proudly but the man to whom i give her must be sound in heart and mind oh, sir everard you have been forbearing with me so far said morton lifting his head and turning his pale agitated face towards the baronet perhaps you will bear with me a little farther and then this painful question may be at rest between us for ever i have asked questions of others my aunt and sir nathaniel ritherden which i feel it would have been more manly to have asked in the first instance of you i have heard from many people that you and my father were bosom friends at school at college in after life was that so yes we were close friends yes he was very dear to me my aunt told me that at cambridge you once saved his life at the risk of your own when he was seized with cramp in a dangerous part of the river i would have done the same for any man in the same danger i was a good swimmer it was nothing do not speak of these things they are painful to remember but i must speak of them i want to understand and after you left the university you were still friends fast friends well, so everyone tells me said morton rising and standing face to face with the baronet who had risen from his chair and was lounging with his back against the chimney-piece and now sir everard as you are a gentleman and a man of stainless honour answer me this question were you and my father friends to the hour of his death everard courtenay faced him without flinching 
the eyelids never quivered over the grey eyes the firm thin lips kept their inflexible line under the iron-grey moustache the dark brows contracted ever so slightly with indignant pride but that was all we never quarrelled he answered coldly but your feelings towards him your affection for him your confidence in him were those unchanged to the last the grey eyes flashed sudden fire the face changed with a look of anger that was terrible titanic almost the rage of jove himself mighty to avenge and destroy young man your questions insult my honour and outrage your father's memory his good name is the best answer to them i will not have the past ripped up to satisfy your unreasonable curiosity i will submit to no cross-examination you insulted me just now by the expression of doubts so absurd that i could not bring myself to resent them but now when you bring your dead father's honour into question you go a step too far oh, forgive me sir everard i am grieved beyond measure to offend you but think how little it is that i ask only to be sure that your love for my father knew no change that he was your friend to the hour of his death hmm. and if i were to say yes you would be satisfied but i deny your right to question me upon a matter of feeling i have told you that there was never any quarrel between your father and me yet i am told that on that last fatal day there was a coolness your manner to each other was not what it had been your informers would have been better sportsmen if they had given their attention to the business in hand instead of watching their neighbours answered sir everard a fox-hunt is hardly a time for the development of friendship oh do people suppose that mr blake and i ought to have ridden shoulder to shoulder all day because we were friends if i remember rightly i was riding a fidgety little black mare which had a rooted objection to poor blake's big chestnut that alone would have been a reason for my giving him a wide berth morton felt a touch of shame at this argument it reduced sir nathaniel's suspicions to nothing and was a descent from the sublime to the ridiculous perhaps all the rest of morton's suspicions were as baseless could be answered as easily as this oh, will you forgive me sir everard he said with a penitent look will you try to forget all i have said to-night for dulcie's sake i will try for dulcie's sake i think i'll go to the morning-room to join her do i would rather be alone you have awakened sad memories you have let loose a fountain of bitter waters oh, forgive me said morton again he went to rejoin dulcie who was sitting on a low chair with a funny little work-table before her and a huge work-basket at her side making children's frocks for her annual distribution of warm clothing which was to take place together with all manner of pleasant little ceremonies snapdragon and a christmas tree for the children and a copper full of elder wine for the grown-ups on christmas eve what happiness for morton to sit beside the industrious little sempstress to thread her needles with slow clumsy fingers and hold her reels of cotton 
fondly imagining that he was helping and not hindering her. Sir Everard left the dining-room directly after his guest, and went out through a lobby, where he stopped to put on his slouch hat and fur-lined coat, to the broad terrace in front of the house, where he paced up and down for an hour, under the wild sky, watching the driving clouds and the sickly moon, and the black shadows of the cedar boughs drifting along the grass. The wild night seemed to suit his humour. When he was tired of the terrace, he wandered about the grounds, across the lawn, round the shrubberied walks, down by the lake, where a swan came out of the darkness and the rushes to hiss at him, angry at the unaccustomed footfall. Once, from the other side of the lake, in the wildest part of the grounds, he stopped to look back at the house, where the Tudor windows of Dulcie's room, with stained glass in the upper mullions, shone like the famous windows in Aladdin's palace, as if they had been set with many-coloured gems. "'My star, my delight,' murmured Sir Everard. "'So long as I have you, I am happy. "'And now my mind is made up. "'My dearest, I may grieve you, but it shall not be for long. "'A father's love shall make amends for all you lose.'" End of chapter 20